Welcome to the Wonder Woman Club podcast. We bring you conversations that will inspire, empower, and educate you to thrive both in business and in life. My name is Vash Naidu, and I'm your host, an intuitive fempreneur coach and the founder of the Wonder Woman Club, a global community of phenomenal women doing phenomenal things in the world. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wonder Woman Club podcast. Today, we have the wonderful Dr. Robin Buckley, and we met on Clubhouse. We've been having numerous conversations that have been so beautiful and so deep and so amazing, and I couldn't wait to have you on the podcast. Dr. Robin is um, she's an executive coach to women and a couples coach, and she has a PhD in psychology. So welcome, Dr. Robin. Tell us a little bit more about you and how you got started in this field. Oh, Vash, thank you so much. I've been looking so forward to actually meeting with you face to face and having this kind of conversation. So my background, uh, I've always been interested in helping people, supporting people. And so it naturally led to psychology. And I did traditional mental health therapy for a good part of my career. But the challenge I always had with it is that in our traditional mental health model, it's about intervention and people come in when they're in crisis. And I've always been an advocate of prevention, like foreseeing something, building strengths before it gets to that crisis level. So as I was in the mental health field, I actually also got trained as a uh, certified professional coach because the coaching model is very much about prevention and working off of a motivated perspective. What do I want to change in my present in order to get to the future that I really want? And therapy is much more about what in my past has created the present. So I like that forward momentum, that forward thinking. So coaching really resonated with me very early in my professional career. And then as I've continued, coaching really has taken over. And uh, it's just it just aligns so well with my personal and professional perspectives of how people can grow and develop. I love that. And I think, you know, with, with having both that perspectives, it changes the dynamic and how you can work with people as well. Um, because it, you can look back, but it's not staying there. But how do you move forward at the same time? And I love that perspective. And, you know, we we have had numerous conversations um, in Clubhouse and, and we talked about couples, about women and their aspects within the relationship, sexuality, all those different things. And and I know we, we just were talking about something that I think is so important. And I want you to go into this in more detail as we get cracking with this interview. And it's your blueprint for relationships. So tell us more about what this looks like. Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey in, in regards to that, because my work with executive women, you know, very often women in general, and certainly a generalization, do not compartmentalize as easily as a more masculine driven brain. They tend to, when they're having struggles with their kids, and they're at work, it's not like they can just put it aside very easily. And the same is true with their relationships. So as the executive women were coming in, and these are women who were, you know, on top of their fields and careers, running big businesses, small businesses, they, they were the boss, but they would come in and also talk about their relationships and how it was impacting or slowing them down if there was some disconnect in their relation, their primary relationships with their partners. And the more I talked with them, the more I learned a couple of things that very often their partners um, were hesitant to come into couples therapy because couples therapy is very often associated with a last ditch effort, too much like upheaval and of, of emotion. And very often they're, they're, uh, the, either the women themselves or their partners were just scared to do that. And they were looking for something different 
than couples therapy. And so the more I worked with these women, the more I realized that coaching worked for them because it was a more objective perspective because with executive coaching, especially a little bit differently than life coaching, we really are focused on what are your goals? What are the strategies? What are the cognitive roadblocks? So it's very concrete and it enhances that objectivity to be able to look at yourself and move forward, like taking charge. So I started thinking about that and how to apply it to relationships. Now, very often coaching is not used with couples. Um, relationship coaches tend to work with one member of the couple very often, not as a, again, not as a whole, but one member of the couple to enhance the relationship. And for me, I wanted to find a way to bring a couple in together to help them create a plan and not a plan based on just wants, but a concrete plan based on strategy. And that's where the idea of a business model, a blueprint came about. That's, that's amazing because I think that take is so different because we at times can walk into relationships with A, sometimes not knowing ourselves, but we have so many blind spots. And as we know, relationships are the greatest triggers to teach us about ourselves, right? In so many levels. And we walk into this blindly and we have a lot of assumptions about what we think love looks like, about what relationships looks like to us. And we all have our own map of the world as such. And we then put that on this other person. We project a lot of different things. And this strategy piece, I think it's so, it's so crucial because we look at life and we strategize a lot about other areas of our lives, but we don't actually take that time to stop and strategize about our relationships. And I, for one, I love this concept because it's something I personally, I, with my own experiences, is definitely something I know I will be doing in future, in my future relationship. Mm -hmm. And can you talk us through what this framework is and how it actually works and, and what stage do you tend to get involved with the couples with this as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start with the, the latter question. So there's two times during a relationship that couples tend to come in and work with me. The first seems at least obvious to me. It's when the couple is about to embark on a, a commitment in their relationship. So typically the commitments are either marriage um, or engagement and then moving in together. So where they are committed, they are blending their lives uh, into one basically. And the couples that I work with are used to success in their professional lives. These are high, high powered, you know, very successful individuals that know how to do it in their business and they want to make sure they do it in their relationship, but it doesn't seem as uh, translatable for them. So they come in trying to find a way to ensure, not guarantee, but ensure the highest level of success possible. The second type of couple that I work with is um, individuals who um, have been in prior relationships and they want to make sure they don't repeat the mistakes from the past. So they're not as new to the relationship situation, but they've done it before and they don't want to replicate the errors. They don't want to go through another, another divorce. They don't want to have a relationship painfully break up. Um, and then the third category are really people who are in a relationship that they're happy with, but they're not satisfied in. So tends to be, again, long-term couples, maybe they're hitting, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of marriage or commitment, and they're just not where they want to be. They want it to be better. 
And they don't know how to do that because they've been functioning almost on autopilot for a certain period of time. And as we all know, autopilot just tends to be routine and boring or just kind of checking the boxes. Even if they're happy boxes, they're not as happy as they want to be. So those are the three levels, you know, you have the young, you know, first commitment type of people, the uh, second, third, fourth, fifth commitment, depending on the couple, and then ones who have been in one long-term commitment, but want to enhance their relationship. So back to your original question, you know, what does it look like when couples come in and my own partner, my husband cringes when I say this, and he's like, why do you say that in every podcast? I'm like, because I... I think it's important to know who you're working with. So when people come in, one of the first things I say to them is, I don't care about your past. I don't care where you're coming from. This is not therapy. So we are not going to do that deep dive into your past to ensure that I'm not going to be working with individuals who really do need therapy. So individuals who are dealing with an infidelity, um, a death, like a death of a child, um, some kind of abuse. Those are couples that really do need therapy. So they, the initial, before they even meet with me, they do a, a intake form to make sure there isn't anything. And each, each member of the couple does it separately. So I get hopefully the, at least as close to the picture as I can. And if there are those issues, I get them to people who can help them. And then later on, if they want to come into coaching, that's great. So once we ensure that none of those issues are in place, they come in with me. I let them know that this is, where are you now? What do you want to change in your present? And where do you want to get to in the future? And we start a step-by-step strategy where each week or each meeting, they have homework. So very much like cognitive behavioral therapy for those listeners who are familiar with it. This is not them just coming in and talking and venting because that doesn't tend to move very quickly. And these couples don't want to waste time. They want to feel good now and as quickly as possible have that plan. So when they come in with me, they are going to be doing work outside of our sessions each week to move the process forward. So as an example, we work off of a business framework. And the first step is, what's your mission statement? And very often the couple just stares at me saying, what, you mean for, for my job? And I'm like, no, for your relationship. What's your mission statement? And I have yet to have a couple come in and say, this is our mission statement and it's not working anymore. I, it hasn't happened in all these years. The closest I think I had was I did have, uh, I have had a couple of people come in and say, well, I know what my personal mission statement is. And I'm like, well, that's awesome, but we're not here about you. We're here about your relationship. And that's, that's what we're working towards. So they start off creating a mission statement and that alone is sometimes very revealing to the couple as to where the disconnect is, how it happened, what they thought they knew about each other. Um, I think that what I really love about couples coaching is it's very rare that in the process, the couple's like, oh, we can't be together. We're out. And that does happen sometimes with couples therapy that they realize this is not workable. Um, couples coaching is not about like trying to find the weaknesses in order to prevent them being together. It's where are the challenges so we can create protocols and plans to overcome those challenges, just like you would in business. Business, when you're creating a new business, there's going to be challenges and issues, but can you foresee them, at least most of them, to be able to have a contingency plan in place? That's what I do with couples. I think that's such a, um, a great approach. And I think, you know, the reason is that it is coaching and the people that are coming are committed to their relationship and are committed to doing the work as well. 
and that takes um, a very different caliber of individuals because there's a lot of individuals that have a set standard of what relationships look like and they don't feel that they should maneuver in any direction and that it should just work. And that's where you tend to find the therapy part of it where it doesn't, it breaks down in so many ways. And, and the challenge is then, can people recover from that or is it parting ways or sticking with it, settling? Because that was, that's what happens to a lot of people that actually do settle. So I wanna to touch on the fact that, you know, you work with women and it's generally executive women. And with working with women, what has been like, you know, the top, the top areas that you've worked with them on in what they're trying to achieve? In terms of their individual professional lives or their relationships? Their individual life. Mm-hmm. The women I work with, um, very often I am working with women, um, predominantly women in their like early 40s to late 60s. I'd say that's the biggest segment of, of, of my uh, roster. And these are women, they're so fun. Oh my gosh, gosh, they're so fun because they're at a stage in their life where they're like, I am done putting myself second. I am done putting everyone else first. I have raised our kids. I've supported my partner. I've taken care of my parents. I've been a good friend to everybody around me. It's time for me. And very often these women are ready to just, the, the way their want manifests is in their career. What have they always wanted in their career? So sometimes it's women who put their career completely on hold, haven't been at their job, at their, their field or training in 20 years, and now they want it. They want it back. They, they want to reclaim the dream that they had or the, as it's you know, a newly evolved dream. Or it's women who are certainly, you know, high up in their in their professions, in their fields. Some of them even own their own businesses, but that's not the end of their dream. And they have slowed down their trajectory because of all the other parts of their life. So these are women who are, they are, they are powerhouses. They come in and they are like, I am ready. I want to do this. I want to do this as quickly as possible. And their energy level is contagious. Um, the younger women I work with, because I do have some younger, again, amazingly powerful young executives, they are trying to avoid the pitfalls that they watch their moms and aunts and women in their life go through. They don't, they want to find a way to integrate, not balance, because I hate that word so much, but integrate all areas of their life. So it works effectively without them getting to the end of the day, feeling like every piece of them has been pulled you know, away from them um, because they're doing so much for other people or um, in all areas of their life, but, but not taking a breath to be able to appreciate it. Um, so these are the most, I think the most common characteristic is just women who are motivated to achieve their want and not feel like they're asking for what they want is selfish. It's, that is the most painful thing for me to hear from women is, oh, I don't want to say it because it sounds selfish or self-centered. I'm like, good, say it. If it's not affecting someone else, if it's not hurting someone else, you're not asking someone else to change because of your want, it's not selfish. And it actually can make you truly rise to that optimal level of functioning by just saying what you want. That's such an important like life lesson, right? On a whole. And I know the woman you're working with seem to have already adapted and accepted and like own that life lesson. But let's for a moment talk about the women that haven't yet. Mm-hmm. So for the women that are still feeling the sense of selfishness, the sense of guilt, the sense of 
I know I should say no, but I'm still saying yes to someone else. So that means I'm saying no to myself. What would be your advice and your guidance in how they can recognize that, how they can change that? Even, you know, because sometimes it's really hard to say no for people. What's the in-between step to get to the no? So what would be advice there? So if they're doing it on their own, my first piece of advice is kind of simplistic, but it's don't respond to any request for at least 30 minutes. So you get a request verbally, email, text, anything. You don't respond for 30 minutes so that it gives you an opportunity to think about how does this really impact me and is it what I really want? Ideally, if that female has already created some kind of mission statement or has written down her wants or her goals, it's doing a quick mental or physical, if she has the list in front of her, check, okay, I'm being asked to do this. How does this align to where I want to get to? Is this like, wow, that'll make great connections for me and I'll be able to network? Then maybe it's a simple yes. Is it, oh my gosh, that's going to pull me away from, you know, this other work that I was going to be doing towards my goal? Then maybe it's a no. It becomes a litmus test basically to be able to evaluate you know, whether it works for you as well as for the person doing the request. Now, certainly there are times I think that we get requests as women that maybe aren't like, oh yeah, that's absolutely going to help me too. And we can say yes to them as long as it doesn't detract from our wants and our goals. So if a friend of mine calls up and says, oh my gosh, you know, is there a way you could pick up, you know, my kid from school because whatever, fill in the blank. And I look at my schedule and I'm like, yeah, I don't have anything, or this would be very simple for me to rearrange my schedule, or yeah, this, this is really not going to impact something in a way that's going to create stress or problems for me. Absolutely. I can do that. I'm not saying that in emergency situations, we can't, you know, again, put everything else aside, but that's not what we're talking about. Women more often are just henpecked all day long with all these requests for, can you do this? Can you help? Can you do, you know, can you fill in? And it's taking the 30 minutes or less to say, is this going to really create a problem, stress, tension, whatever for me, or is this something that is workable or is this something that actually could benefit me? So I think that's the first step for women who aren't necessarily in working with a coach or, or have that kind of resource for women who are working with a coach. I think a lot of coaches and that's a whole different topic of, in terms of what to look for when you, you engage with a coach or you hire a coach. But a lot of coaches who are really well-trained use very good assessments to help people understand who they are. And again, I think that builds into the litmus test. So things like and the Enneagram is a great assessment for people to understand who am I really at a level that they might not always, I mean, we can answer like many of us can say, oh, who am I? And give, you know, three to five characteristics, but deeper level assessments sometimes help us understand what our pitfalls are that are just the nature of our personality, the nature of some of our, our conditioning. And by knowing that we can, again, foresee some of the challenges that might come and head them off. I think, you know, it's, it's something so small and so minute when you can just pause, right? Then it's, it's that whole moment of pausing and how important the pause actually is in so many different ways. Yeah. And it's recognizing when, and sometimes, you know, you might have something planned for yourself just to go for a coffee and then you've got someone's like, oh, can you do this for me? And the natural reaction is you always want to help and you want to help, especially people you love and care for. 
And it's, it's recognizing when you need something as well. It's recognizing when you need the space, when you need the time, whatever you need, and prioritizing yourself more than anything else. And being, being aware that when you prioritize yourself, what that means is you're allowing yourself to refill your cup, yep. to then give from the overflow, as opposed to giving what's left in your cup to others. Because a lot of the time, that's what women tend to do. So I think that's such an important part to, to address for so many people that are out there, so many women, especially that do this. And I want to go back to the. I want to jump sorry. in and say the analogy I use, and I love the cup analogy, is I use the oxygen mask on travel. The first directive is put the oxygen mask on yourself first, because if you don't, you're going to be of no use to anybody else. And that is true in our lives. If we don't care for ourselves, allow for those like moments of breath we're not going to be at our best for someone else. We actually, it is one of the most unselfish things to do to prioritize your, your own self-care so that you are at your best for all the other people in your life. You're giving them a gift by taking care of yourself. So put the oxygen mask on first and don't forget to do that. Absolutely. And that's, a, that's it. It's self-care, self-love, self-worth, all of those things. If you don't have that in place, you can be a doormat to anyone and everyone. And unfortunately, even to your kids, without them asking you to be it, you are choosing it. So it's a learning that you should be putting yourself in those spaces and also teaching your kids what that looks like for them as they grow up, because you're instilling the beliefs in them now that they will think this is how I should be. This is what I should do. This is how I should be letting others treat me and what I should say yes to and what I should say no to. So I think sometimes that's a big wake up call for a lot of people is that we don't realize even as young as two, three years old, we're teaching them things. And you might think, oh, they don't notice this stuff. Kids notice everything. And it's going into the subconscious on so many different levels. Um, So thank you so much for that. And the part I want to go back to is the woman you work with. So the, the highly motivated, the three types of woman, you know, the professional, the one that's ready to reclaim her power. And, you know, the younger woman who's trying to integrate all these different areas of their lives. What have been the challenges that they've faced either in those different categories or collectively, what has been the top challenges they faced and what has been your teachings and guidance to maneuver them out of that? So the first one that comes to mind is actually what I've coined uh, the term, the Mulan complex. So <laughs> yeah, just like, just like out of the, the Chinese folk, uh, folklore that Disney then interpreted. Um, so I'm, I, I think most of your listeners probably uh, know the story of Mulan, but basically she, you know, was a very, living a very traditional female uh, lifestyle in China. Her dad was conscripted into the army. He was elderly. So she uh, uh, disguised herself as a male, took his place, came back. And actually part of the folklore that was not presented in Disney as well was when she came back, she then readopted the very female uh, traditional role. For women, particularly young women, this is something that they, maybe that's not fair to say just young women, but what they experience is they start their day and they're doing all the traditional female things. They're taking care of the kids, they're packing their lunches, they're you know signing whatever needs to be signed. They are doing everything for everybody else, kids, spouse, whoever it might be. So they're in that more stereotypical female nurturer perspective. Then they go to work and I wish it was different, but I've talked to way too many women. So I know it's not quite where we want it to be. And they're expected to adopt 
the masculine persona, just like Milan did, where it is all about aggression and power and status and who can be the loudest voice in the room. And it is contrary to the whole feminine energy. So they switch because that's what's expected for success. That's the stereotype of what it takes to be successful. Then they leave work and they go home and then they readopt the female energy where it's the nurturing and the listening and um, you know, the sensual, all those female characteristics. And it's unbelievably exhausting. Women wonder why they get to the end of the day and they're, they like feel like they've been torn in three different directions because they have by their own doing at some level and sometimes it's just society. So I think that's one of the hardest things that women throughout their day are flip-flopping through the feminine and masculine energies instead of, instead of being allowed to either by themselves or their environment integrate the masculine and the feminine because that's within all of us, both those energies all those types of characteristics, how to integrate them so that you feel like a unified person rather than segmented throughout your day. So that probably is one of the biggest ones I hear about from lots of women. Um, yeah, I started off saying the younger women, but I, I hear it from the, the older women as well. Even women who have been in business for a very long time say, yep, it's, it's still expected that we look a certain way and fit the more masculine kind of perspective. Um, so that would, that would probably be one of the biggest one. And the other one we touched on is just the not allowing themselves to put, put themselves in their calendars, in their schedules, you know, as a top priority. And the, the biggest complaint I hear from women, regardless of whether they have children or not, or elderly parents at home from every woman is they get to the end of the day and they're exhausted. They are just, they don't feel like they've connected with themselves in a very long time. And that over time can really sap the motivation, the drive, the understanding of what they really want. And if you don't know what you want, then there's no way you're going to get to the things that are important to you. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's true. Definitely of the, the issue that I hear from women as well, that it is those two that definitely stick out there at the top. For the Mulan um, concept is basically, how do you help them through that then? Because it's quite a challenging, um, it's, it's a lot of the belief work, right? Around what they believe they need to be doing and things like that. How do you help them through that? Yeah, so we do a lot of, a lot of discussion about the cognitive. So as I referenced earlier, my background in therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is looking at the thoughts how to control the thoughts so that once we have control of our thoughts, we can control our emotions and our behaviors. So it's identifying, just as you said, that belief system about why can't you, for example, use appropriate physical touch at work, which is always one I love to bring up because it's always like, whoop, that, nope, you're not supposed to touch at work. I'm like, hmm, appropriate physical touch. So women by nature, again, these are, these are generalizations, but they're more comfortable with physical touch than men. And so uh, an executive I was working with uh, a couple of weeks ago, I met with her and she said she was in this, it was an after hours happy hour, but it was really like a professional networking and schmoozing kind of opportunity. And she said, I just could not insert myself into the conversation. I was the only woman, you know, I specifically worn a navy blue, you know, pantsuit so that I blended in with the guys. And 
we're, we're standing by the bar talking. It was a bar in their office. Um, and she said they were just so loud and I just could not, I, I would try and I couldn't get my voice heard and I didn't want to yell. So I asked her, okay, well, what do you do? Tell me like when you're with your friends and, and she is more of an introvert by nature. And, and she, I said, what do you do when you want to say something with your friends, but they're all like jazzed up and talkative. She's like, well, usually like I stand a little closer to one, or maybe I'll like touch him on the shoulder to let him know, Hey, I, I want to say something. I'm like, okay, why couldn't you do that with these men? She's like, Oh no, no, no. You're not, you, you shan't, you can't touch. I'm like, and I tend to be a little flippant sometimes. So I said, I, I made some comment. I'm like, I'm not asking you to touch them inappropriately. Probably said a little more directly in my, in my conversation with her, but I said, but why couldn't you just rest your hand on a forearm and see what happens? Just see what happens. Maybe, maybe it'll go, it won't go well and you'll never do it again, but why not just experiment with physical, appropriate physical touch? So she did. So the next time she was in a group of all men, cause she tends to be the only woman in the room, even though she's one of the top people. Um, and she said, I picked the one that I'm most comfortable with. Cause I thought that would be a good place to start. And I, repositioned myself right next to him. And as they were talking and I had something to say, I put my hand right on his forearm and he stopped talking. And when he stopped talking, everybody else stopped talking. And I was able to talk like, exactly. You use something that is innately you and also innately feminine, at least from the feminine mm -hmm. perspective. And you changed the course of the conversation. I said, did you have to do that more than that time? She's like, no. She's like, it was very strange. All I had to do was like shift my body a little bit. And it was like, they were now paying attention to me just from that one time touching one person appropriately on the forearm. So that's what I get women to talk about and to get through the blocks of, oh, I can't do that because it's too feminine or too unprofessional. Why? If it works in your personal life, why couldn't we find a way to build that in in a professional way to utilize it as a strength rather than seeing it as some kind of weakness because it's feminine. So I love that example because sometimes it's so um it, it it's so easy that we do this in our natural surroundings and our natural setting. And, and it's the same for me. Um, you know, when I'm in the corporate space and you know, I work in the finance sector as well, and you go to these meetings and even just trying to get a word in becomes quite challenging. And I think over time, what I've learned to do is I've learned to say, excuse me, or, you know, stop and say something or just interject and say, but I think that this might be, or, you know, just interject at that moment, because when I'm, I'm someone that generally like, you know, will sit back, pay attention, observe a bit, and then actually start to speak. Um, and, and I think that's the difference is that you, you tend to find in more masculine spaces, men like to speak, they like to hog the limelight and it's really hard to get your word in if you allow them to continue doing that because unconsciously they don't actually know you want to say something. So it's not that they're intentionally doing it either, unless, you know, they're a completely different type of man. Um, but, you know, in most cases, they don't know when you want to speak. So I think we, we get that hang up as women. It's like, should I say something? What are they thinking? And it's all like inner self-talk that goes on. It's just like, just be normal, just be yourself. Yeah. Yep. And being yourself is the superpower. That's it. You know, being yourself, talking to people in the way you would is exactly the superpower you need to conduct yourself with in everything. And it's like, you don't have to have one face for work, one face for home, one face for everything else. And, and I've become more comfortable with that um, over time as well. And I think you grow into yourself, you grow into your confidence and you grow into your strengths as well. 
Um, but the, the sooner you can do that, the better it is for you in every level. So, um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I want to thank you so much for this wonderful interview. It's been amazing picking your brain about all of these things. We will definitely have you back because there's so much more I want to ask you about. Um, but I've loved this time with you and I look forward to our next interview. So thank you so much, Dr. Robin. Oh, no, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much.